please open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to continue our series in 1 Peter. While you turn there, let me ask you a quick question. Anybody here seen the film The Lion King? All right, okay, just, if you just raise your hand, a bit of audience participation, it'll keep you warm as well as we raise our hands. So, every, okay, who hasn't seen The Lion King? All right, great. So, my introduction should need little introduction. Uh, we all know about The Lion King. It's about Simba, the crown prince, the uh, little lion cub who lives in the Pride Lands, who is tricked by his jealous and treacherous uncle, Scar, Jeremy Irons, uh, into thinking that he has caused his father's death. And so what happens in The Lion King is Simba flees from the kingdom, from the Pride Lands, into exile, where he grows... Uh, well, he's, he lives in shame and despair at what he feels he's done in murdering his dad through the stampede or killing, being involved in killing his dad. He meets uh, Timon and Pumbaa, uh, and they teach him about Hakuna Matata and all of that kind of thing, you know, no worries. And then he learns, as he's an adult, his true identity and his responsibility through meeting the crazy, or he, he thinks the crazy, baboon Rafiki, uh, and there's a turning point in the film, if you've watched it, and I was going to show the clip, but we can't because we don't have the right license and so we'd be breaking the law. So I just want to acknowledge my faithfulness to the law there, uh, <laughs> even though it would have been better to see it. Simba meets Rafiki. Rafiki tells him that he knows his father, Mufasa, and then he leads him on a little bit of a chase through the woods. And they eventually end up at this reflecting pool where Rafiki says, look in the pool and you'll see Mufasa, and he looks, and at first he sees his own reflection, and then as he looks harder, he sees the water kind of changes, and he sees his father in the reflection, and then the heavens open, and this kind of apparition uh, of Mufasa, Simba's dad, appears and begins to talk to him, and he begins to say to him stuff like, listen, you have forgotten who you are. You've forgotten who you are, and Simba's trembling, and he begs his father, to stay with him because he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know. He knows he should go back to the Pride Lands and try and rescue it from the, the evil kind of reign of his uncle Scar. And he begs his father, stay with me, help me. And his father just says, all you need is to remember who you are. And then as the scene closes out, remember who you are, just echoes and echoes and echoes with that voice of James Earl Jones. We can imagine it, can't we? As Darth Vader says, remember who you are, Simba. Uh, and my cold kind of helps with that, at least in my own head, to think that I sound like James Earl Jones. And then Rafiki watches as Simba runs off back to the Pride Lands uh, to defeat Scar. But the thing that I want you to remember, if you go home and you can watch it, is this phrase that James Earl Jones says as Mufasa over Simba. Remember who you are. And that is what Peter has to say to us this morning from this passage. In a similar way, he's speaking to elect exiles, people who are, not in, who are living outside of their true home, in a broken world that's hostile to them. And he comes with a poignant reminder. Remember who you are. Ah, now last week we began in verses four to eight of chapter two, where we talked about the greatest building, that God is reminding us who we are by turning our attention to the fact that as Christians, we have, we've become living stones who are joined to the living stone, 
the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And together, he is building us with divine intentionality and care. He's shaping us and fitting us and chipping away at the old blocks to make us into his spiritual house. A place where God is happy to dwell. A place where God, that God is going to use to display his power and his glory and his wisdom and his might to a watching world. We're the greatest building. And then we looked at why we are, not just who we are, but why we are. We are the priesthood. So we, we're the building and we're also the priests that function in the building, called and set apart to live lives of honor and glory to God. Now, in verses 9 and 10 that we're going to explore this morning, Peter's just going to remind, encourage, and repeat. He's just going to do the same thing again. Remind, encourage, repeat. And all the way through the reading of the text, you should hear God's voice saying in, in James Earl Jones' voice, remember who you are. So let's read together. From We're going to read from verse 4 to the end of verse 10 just to remind ourselves of the context. It's Peter and God's words to us. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so this honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy. But now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Ask for God's help. Lord, rich words right before us. Help us to hear your voice reminding us who we are. And may we be changed by it. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. So, Basically, this week is the same message as last week, but with a twist. Because Peter's reminding us again who we are, but he's going to develop it and take it a little bit further by explaining to us not just who we are, but the privilege of who we are. So last week, we looked at the greatest building. This week, we're going to look at the greatest privilege. It's the privilege of who we are as God's people. And in verse 9, he begins and sets what he wants to say to us as Christians against the contrast of verse 8. Now, in verse 8, he describes the destiny of all of those who are disobedient and disbelieving. They'll stumble and fall and end under destruction. 
under God's judgment, and they'll end in destruction. So that is the destiny, the sad and desperate destiny of all those who do not know Jesus Christ and who do not build their lives upon him as the cornerstone, which is why there's such uh, an urgency for us to go beyond these four walls and tell people the gospel, why there's an urgency to plant churches in Jamaica, why there's an urgency to reach the lost with the good news of the gospel, because they're going to stumble and fall and end up in destruction. But for the church, for us this morning, Peter takes four Old Testament phrases and magnificently applies them to us. So we're just going to look at these four verses this morning and hear God's blessings that he bestows upon his church, the greatest privileges that we could ever enjoy. So here's the first one. He calls us a chosen race. Now, actually, Mim read from Isaiah 43 in the, uh, in the, in the singing time, uh, and I didn't know she was going to do that, but God obviously had planned it because chosen race fits right into the context of Isaiah 43. This is what Peter is quoting when he calls us a chosen race. And, and as Mim read for us from verses 1 to 4, the context is God announces himself as Israel's only saviour. He declares that he's the one who will deliver his people from the exile of Babylon and he will call them out of exile and bring them together as his people once again so that they might declare the praises of him who's called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're a chosen race. Uh, and Israel's deliverance from exile in Babylon was was one of the great Old Testament forerunners for the work of Jesus on Calvary in the gospel. That what God did in drawing out Israel from exile into Babylon foreshadows what God is doing to bring people like you and me from darkness, which is a metaphor for God's judgment and God's uh, death that we deserve, that he brings upon us because of our sins. He brings us from that darkness into his light. And that's, that's a picture, it's pictured in the exile from Babylon. That God has saved his people out of exile and returned them to Jerusalem, returned them to the land, just as God would bring people from darkness to light through Jesus Christ. And so Peter seizes the imagery of all that Isaiah was saying in chapter 43, and he applies it to the church. He takes this image of a chosen race, and he says to his first readers, and he says to us this morning, you are a chosen race. That's a radical claim because it means that those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, whether we be Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman from Cappadocia or Galatia or Bithynia, as the first readers were, or whether they be from Bristol, England, Scotland, Wales, Portugal, Malaysia, wherever you might be from this morning, God has drawn us from many different races to make us one chosen race made up of all who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We now are one chosen race. That means that our identity is not determined by our place of birth or the, the nationality on your passport. It's determined by Jesus. That means... And I speak mostly to us who are Brits this morning, but for all of us, to Marco Marta, the Portuguese, to Sharon from Malaysia, that means our nationality, uh, what is written on our passport, does not, is not who we are first. We're Jesus' people first, who just happen to have been drawn from a British background 
or a Portuguese background, or an Ethiopian background, or a Chinese background, or a Malaysian background. We're Christ followers first. Part of his great chosen race. So one of the implications of that is there should be no way on earth that the church should engage in any kind of racism or in any kind of white supremacy. Man, I, I read uh, on the internet yesterday or the day before how pastors in America who claim to be Christians are telling everybody that white supremacy, Trumpism is right because, you know, that, because, you know, that's, I mean, the one report I read was like Trump needs a wall because heaven will have a wall around it. You just think, what on earth is this all about? It's nonsense. There is no place in the church for racism or for white supremacy or for thinking that we're better than those who are from a different nation. Don't let Brexit, uh, you know, overshadow the way that we operate towards one another. We are, as Christians, we are Christ followers first. And then we just happen to be from Britain or Europe or Africa or Asia or wherever it might be, second. This also works down into the segregation of the classes. You know, there should be no, uh, I'm of the middle class, I'm, you know, upwardly mobile, I'm upper middle class, I'm working class, I'm lower class. We are God's people. Paul says as much in Galatians chapter 3, 28, there is now no Jew nor Gentile, slave or free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We're a chosen Race, remember who we are. Secondly, royal priesthood. This is a quotation from, uh, that's taken from Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, where God calls, us, calls his people a, a royal priesthood. Now, the priesthood works on two different levels in the Old Testament, okay? So there was the, the priesthood of Israel, which was made up of Aaron and his descendants and the, the tribe of Levi, who were chosen by God to play a special priestly role within the context of God's people. So they were to be, the priests in Israel were to be the mediators between the regular people and God, and between God and the regular people. And so Aaron and his family and his descendants and Levites played a role, this priestly role. But then also the nation of Israel played a priestly role, a mediatory role between God and the surrounding nations. Uh, and by that, I mean that Israel was chosen by God to be a priesthood, to be a nation that would shine forth and show off the glory of God and the, the mercy of God and the power of God and the might of God to the surrounding nations so that the Moabites and the Philistines and the, you know, all of those funny named people in the Old Testament, so they would look on and they would realize there is no God but the God of Israel. That was their priestly function. They were to mediate between the surrounding nations and God, to declare the praises of the true God to the nations that worship false gods. And so Peter takes this image of royal priesthood and he applies it to the church. He applies it to the first readers and he applies it to us. He tells us, we don't have to be descendants of Abraham, uh, of, of Aaron rather. We don't have to be uh, descendants of Abraham. We don't have to be of a particular tribe in order to draw near to God. We don't need a mediator to come between us and God now. Christ has fulfilled that role. But as the church together, he's appointed us. He's called us. 
And he set us apart for holiness, like the priests. And he set us apart for service to the king. That's why we're royal priesthood. We're set apart for holiness and service to the king to shine forth and to show off the glory of God to the surrounding world so that the neighborhoods and the communities of Bristol and England and Scotland and Wales and Europe and the whole world would realize through the way that we live, there really is no God but the God of the Bible. There's no God but the one true living God. So we're a chosen race and a royal priesthood. We're to remember who we are. Thirdly, we're a holy nation. Again, this is, this is um, out of Exodus 19. So if you want to go back and read those, that, that passage, it'll flesh out our understanding. But in Exodus 19, God has led his people out of Egypt through Moses, under the leadership of Moses. He's gathered them at Mount Sinai. And now he's bringing together the 12 disparate tribes to be one holy nation under his covenant and law. That's what's happening in Exodus 19 and 20 and onwards. Uh, And and just like the deliverance of of God's people out of exile in Babylon, the exodus out of Egypt and the uh, the constitution of the nation of Israel to be God's people, it was a forerunner of the deliverance, the greater deliverance that Jesus would win through his work at Calvary. And so Peter takes this image of holy nation and all that's taking place in Exodus 19. And he says, I'm going to apply that to the church, to the first readers and to us this morning. We are God's holy nation. Not by ethnic identity, not by skin color, not by language or by geographical borders and boundaries. We become God's holy nation as we are constituted together as a church through faith. Verses 6 and 7, it's through faith, through believing in Christ that we will not be put to shame. It's through faith in the cornerstone that we become God's spiritual house, built on that cornerstone. It's through faith in Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, as Revelation 19 calls him, that we, we become a holy nation. And them, the first readers, just like us, were former pagan Gentiles who were cut off and far off from God, who've now been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ to be God's holy nation. Called to be holy. I I wish we had more time to get into this. Maybe we'll do it another week. But that, that idea of being a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a chosen race, it's dripping with moral implications about how we are to live, that there should be an obedience and a, and a pursuit of sanctification as God's people uh, that makes us different from the world around us. How are we going to shine forth and show off the glory of God if we're just like the world or we're just one step removed from the world? There's, more, there's a moral dynamic and a moral quality here, uh, a moral implications to being a holy nation. We're, we're intended to be different. But right now, he's going to get into that as he goes on from verse 11 to the end of the book. But right now, he's just, he wants us to remember who we are. A chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Then fourth, people for his own possession. And here it's not one direct Old Testament quote, but he's mashing together Isaiah 43 and Exodus 19 and Malachi chapter 3 verse 17. And all of this language that's found in the Old Testament describes the very fact that Israel was the people. They were the people out of all the nations of the world that God could have chosen. Israel were the people that he claimed as his own, that he claimed as precious, that he declared his love to rest upon. They were special to him. They were his treasure. They were the apple of his eye. And although God owns everything because he made everything, and although everything belongs to him and everyone belongs to him and owes allegiance to him, he declares Israel to be his particular, unique, special people. And so in Exodus, he declares as he constitutes them to be his holy nation, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Peter says, I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to bestow it on the church. He seizes that language and that imagery and he takes it to the first readers and he takes it to us and he says, look at the privilege of the church. He is your God and you are his special people. And if you don't believe me, you get to the end of time in Revelation 21. And what does God declare about his bride, the church, us, on that last day? As the new Jerusalem comes down out of the heavens. Says, John says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from the heavens. And I heard a voice. What did the voice declare? The dwelling place of God is with man. For he will be their God. And they we will be his people. That should kind of give you tingling things down the back of your neck. It does me, right? Just as I was thinking about this, my hair is standing on end. Because Peter is describing the privileges of the church. You just thought you turned up to see your friends this morning. Maybe to sing a few songs. Maybe to hear someone preach. Is he going to keep to 30 minutes? Let me tell you, I'm 22 already. Probably not. But God is here. And the privileges of all of God's promises in the Old Testament rest on us right now. Isn't that amazing? That should make you smile. That should send a bit of a shiver down your spine. You and me, with all of our imperfections and failures and sins, and skeletons in our closet, and things that we wish people didn't know about us, and all of the things that we've done wrong this morning before we arrived, and all of the thoughts, and the words, and the deeds, and the actions, forgiven by Jesus. And he comes this morning, and he wants to remind us of who we are. Through Christ, we're his chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people are for his own special, treasured, whichever 
version you're using, it uses these words. His own special treasured possession. And I find that amazing. Now imagine what the first readers must have felt like, living in a hostile world, being despised because of their faith in Jesus. They were being condemned as troublemakers and threats. They were being persecuted. And Peter comes and he says, remember who you are. Be aware of God's assessment of you this morning. Don't worry about how the world labels you. It's insignificant. Because what God sees is most important. His assessment is most important. And this is how God thinks of you. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. And it should do the same for us this morning. Perhaps you're aware of how the world views Christians. Perhaps you're aware of how society labels us. We live in a hostile world. We're increasingly despised and mocked and marginalized and maligned. We'll increasingly be condemned as troublemakers and threats because we won't toe the party line and the social liberal agenda. None of that matters because this is God's assessment of us. We're his Holy, royal, chosen, special people. Now, that has some implications for us this morning that I just want to touch on a couple of things. First one is this. Let me ask you a question. If we were to play Mallet's Mallet, a word association game, what would you think of? What would be the first word that comes into your mind when you think Grace Church? Perhaps it's positive. I hope it is. Perhaps it's negative. Might be. Perhaps it's a bit of both. But here, right now, God gives us language and imagery by which we need to think about this church. Not just who we are in some generic way, but the distinct and high honor and great privilege of who we are. So Peter's telling them, and us, you're God's spiritual house. It's, not, it's no longer the temple in Jerusalem. It's the church. It's Grace Church. We're a chosen race. It's no longer descendants of Abraham. It's the church. It's this church. It's Grace Church. We're a royal priesthood. Don't have to be a descendant of Aaron anymore. It's the church. It's Grace Church. It's this church. We're a holy nation. It's not geographical, ethnic Israel. It's the church. This church. We're God's special possession, the church. This church. And there's significance and unity and purpose that's loaded, is dripping off those terms that, and meaning that is in, in, endowed upon this church through these titles and privileges that we need to grasp hold of. And perhaps we need to rethink how we view this church. Perhaps we need to rethink how we speak about this church. Put aside the cynicism and skepticism and sarcasm of ways we can speak about the church. And I'm not just talking about the church as a machine. We're talking about one another. Perhaps we need to repent of our take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards the church, or our indifference, or our apathy, or our resentment, or just the fact that we just come as a matter of habit. God isn't 
happy with any of those things. And I speak to myself before I even speak to you guys. It's very easy for it to just become habit for us to just turn up Sunday after Sunday. But God isn't interested in habits. He doesn't want us to be indifferent towards his church. He doesn't want us to be cynical or skeptical or sarcastic about his church. He wants us to love his church. And do you know why he wants us to love his church? Because he loves it. And do you know how much God loves his church? He was prepared to send Jesus to die for his church. Just think about that for a moment. The people that you are sat next to, that you can see the back of their heads, or the people that can see the back of your head right now. Jesus died for them. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for them. And if Jesus loves that person and those people and you enough to die for you, we should love one another. John Stott says this. If the church is central to God's purpose as seen in both history and in the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the outside what God has placed at the center? So let's just ask ourselves a question. Beginning of the year, do we love this church? And how can we love this church better? Where do we need to repent and where do we need to change? Because we will all fall into, into some category where we are not perfect. Second implication here is that the language is corporate and plural, building, race, nation, priesthood, people. It's very difficult to do those things on your own. And it flies in the face of the individualistic culture that we live in where it just breathes independence and privacy and being on your own. And we've got to avoid the temptation to bring that kind of air that we breathe into the church. We've got to avoid the temptation to be scuba diver Christians. Right? Hopefully you'll remember this. Scuba diver Christians. If you're a scuba diver, never done it, but quite fancy it. Scuba divers, they, they dive down into the ocean deeps to see the wonder of God's creation, don't they? They dive down to see the fish and the coral and everything else. But scuba divers live in their own self-contained system. They just breathe their own air. And they don't really have an ability to communicate very well with other scuba divers who might be diving with them. We've got to avoid the temptation to be scuba diver Christians where we think we could just dive into the wonder of God's creation, but we maintain our own self-contained air system where we just breathe on our own. We're just okay on ourselves. That's not what the church is. It's not just, as we said last week, a bunch of Christians who just happen to be on the same bus heading for heaven. We're not just a bunch of scuba divers on our own self-contained breathing system. We just happen to be diving in the same place. We are God's people. He has redeemed us for, our, for himself and he's brought us together into his new community, the church. And so the gospel has saved us and given us life and that life that it gives us is life together. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates man, he says it's not good for man to be alone. So what does God do? He creates woman. He puts him in community. And then when we're recreated as God's new creation, 
What does he do? He puts us together in community. Those words in Genesis 1 are just as applicable when we become recreated as when God first created. It's not good for man or woman to be alone. We need to think we more than than just me. And our priority, because we only have limited hours, is that we spend the priority of our time with people in this congregation rather than just any old Christian that we know. Not that it's not good to be together with other Christians, but our priority should be the people that God is building us together with as a spiritual house here at Grace Church. And we should be aiming for gospel-revealing community that is notable by its breadth. So if Peter can write to the first Christians and say the gospel stretches to include relationships as diverse as Jew and Gentile coming together, well then surely the community and the relationships and the breadth that we're after is more than just inviting people that you like the most or who are most like you round to your house for stuff. It's not just focusing on the pretty people or, the, or the, those who are most like you. Peter calls us to engage in recognizing the church is a community of people and we're living stones and some of us have got jagged edges that butt up against one another and yet that should not stop us from being together, from pursuing one another, from coming together with those who are not naturally inclined to be in fellowship with that we We want to spend time with them. Like the gospel is seen, the power of the gospel is most seen in relationships where they don't make sense other than the fact that we're Christians joined together by Jesus. If we join together because we're football fans or because we're artists or because we like music or because we like shopping or because we just happen to be the same age, that's great. But that's gospel community plus something else. And you could take the gospel away and we'd still be friends. But what Peter, one of the implications here is that we should be in relationship with one another, not because we're football or music fans, but because we're Jesus fans, first and foremost. And our relationships across age and and, and multi-intergenerational and, and all the other things that, we, that cross over in the life of a church, we, we cross those boundaries and those differences because our primary goal is to be God's people. So there should be breadth to our relationship, but there should also be depth. So Peter here is, he's not just talking about coming together as people who tolerate one another. You know, to be a race, a priesthood, a nation, a people, or a family, as as the Bible talks elsewhere, it means being tightly committed to one another. One author that I read this week, Scott Saul, says this. It's not going to come up on the screen because I just entered it at the last minute. But he says this. Listen, as the church, we didn't choose one another. All right, you didn't choose me. I didn't choose you. We didn't choose one another. But God chose us and he's given us to one another. And he intends for us to be together and not to hit the eject button when things get difficult or irritating or boring. And when we build together, we're the better for it. So, who could we reach out to? Who do we know the least in this church? Who's never been into our house before? Let's, the, church, the kingdom is topsy-turvy. Start with those people rather than going to those, those that we always go to. Who's outside my circle, outside my clique? And although we probably deny it, we all have a certain circle of people that we'd rather hang out with. Yeah, we, we all do. 
But the gospel calls us to break out and diversify our relationships. Because he wants us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Being part of the church means belonging to God. And it means the sense of belonging to one another. And that's a thrilling privilege. It's a thrilling privilege. To be the people of God is the highest, greatest privilege in the universe. Now, to protect us from feeling smug, to protect us from being arrogant as a church, into thinking, yeah, you know, we're pretty good. I can see why God would want me as his chosen race and his royal priesthood. I'm pretty priestly. I'm a, yeah, I'm pretty holy. I, would, I, could think, I could see why he'd want me to be part of his holy nation. You know, I've often thought for a long time, I look in the mirror and I think, you are the apple of God's eye. To save us from being smug and arrogant, in verse 10, Peter borrows language from Hosea chapter 2 to help us to recognize why we have these privileges. Now, if you don't know the book of Hosea, it's a great read. Uh, in the book of Hosea, God, uh, God's people have committed grievous, grievous sin and rebellion against God. They have run off to other gods. They've adulterated themselves. They've broken the covenant between them and God. And they've indulged in all sorts of godless, pagan practices. They have forsaken God. And in breaking the covenant, they have willingly forfeited all of the privileges that were theirs, like royal priesthood, holy nation, special possession, and God has ejected them from the land into exile. But in Hosea chapter 2, God speaks of a time when he will gather again a people for himself, when he will constitute the royal priesthood and a holy nation and a special possession of people again for himself, who would declare the mighty acts that brought them into existence. He says in Hosea 2, verse 23, I will show mercy to those people who have not seen mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you will once again, or you will be my people. And so Peter takes the imagery of Hosea chapter 2, and he says, like Israel who rejected God and were no longer God's people, you Gentiles who were living in the darkness of sin and death, who were cut off, and far away from inclusion in God's people, now you are God's people. And just like the first readers and Israel before them, we who should have stumbled and fallen in, like those in verse 8 and been condemned to destruction because of our disbelief and our disobedience, now we are God's people. Why? Verse 10. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Everything that we have, all of the aforementioned privileges and blessings of verse 9, we don't deserve them. We don't earn them. We don't merit them. You and I are not worthy of them. In and of ourselves, we are unworthy to be included in the blessings and to be numbered among God's people. But God is merciful to us. And everything that we have is solely and wholly traceable to the fact that he has mercy upon us. Go back to chapter 1, verse 3 where Peter began at the beginning of this section. 
And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the section that runs from 1.3 to 2.10 that opens the book and all of the privileges that are described as individual Christians and as the church, they're bookended by what? Mercy. Bookended by mercy. Peter will go on to say in chapter 2, verse 21, that Jesus has borne our sins in his body on the tree. That's the mercy displayed so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Everything we have is by mercy. Finish with this, John Calvin. In Christ, every part of our salvation is complete. As all mankind are in the sight of God, lost sinners, we hold that Christ is their only righteousness since by his obedience, he has wiped off our transgressions. By his sacrifice, appeased the divine anger. By his blood, washed away our sins. By his cross, borne our curse. And by his death, made satisfaction for us. We maintain that in this way, man is reconciled in Christ to God the Father by no merit of his own, by no value of works, but by gratuitous mercy. Mercy. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people, God's special possession. Why do we have these privileges? Mercy. 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 And he wants to, us to remember who we are and the great privilege of who we are. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Let's do that together. Let's pray and let's sing. Father, thank you this morning for your mercy. And thank you that through that mercy, you have called us out of darkness into your wonderful light to be your chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and a people for your own possession. Lord, let us marvel at the privileges that we have and let us marvel, marvel even more at the mercy of our God that makes it possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.